All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Hey, everyone. It is Wednesday, July 27th. I'm Mosh Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We try to read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. So I have a couple of headlines for you today, but a really important conversation. This August marks one year since the disastrous U.S. withdrawal from the war in Afghanistan. Some of you who are following me on Instagram know that we went uh, 24-7 for that coverage last summer, and I want to make sure we are checking in one year later. Over the course of the next month, we'll be providing you coverage from all perspectives on what has happened over the last year, and I wanted to start with a really important one, U.S. war veterans. Army Staff Sergeant Benjamin Sledge served multiple tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. He has a new book out called Where Cowards Go to Die. We actually first spoke last summer during that withdrawal, uh, and I wanted to be sure to have him on when this book came out. I'm very excited for everyone to be able to listen to this conversation. I feel torn in two. I love war. War is awesome. Yeah, it, because it gave me such a profound sense of meaning and purpose. And then at the same time, like I'm like, I hate war. I will do anything to ensure that we don't go to war. We'll have more on that in a second, but first a couple headlines to start your day. The Federal Reserve this afternoon will announce its decision on how much to raise interest rates as it continues to try to rein in inflation. They're expected to raise them another three quarters of a percent up into the mid 2% range. It'll be the fourth hike in five months. The Fed will also give us an indication today of how many more rate hikes we can expect later this year. As we've talked about, they're trying to be very careful here as they raise rates. They're trying to ensure the economy does not go into recession. So the goal here is raise interest rates, kind of dry up the money supply, Try to ensure there's less consumer demand. That'll then mean stores will have to start to stop increasing prices and maybe bring them down. But the big fear is if they raise interest rates too much and slow down the economy too much, they could put us in a recession. Speaking of which, we will get more numbers tomorrow, Thursday, with the announcement by the Commerce Department if the U.S. economy grew or got smaller in the second quarter. That will be sure to set off a debate on whether we are in a recession that won't be resolved for a while. Check out the podcast we did yesterday on Tuesday, July 26, for a breakdown of exactly what we're talking about when it comes to recession or no recession. In other news, WNBA star Brittany Griner is set to testify today as part of her drug trial over in Russia. Yesterday, her defense team claimed that the cannabis oil found in her luggage was actually there for medicinal purposes. Griner has acknowledged that she was carrying vape canisters containing cannabis oil when she was arrested at a Moscow airport back in February. 
She's been in jail since then and faces potentially a 10-year sentence. She contends that she had no criminal intent and the canisters actually ended up in her luggage inadvertently. The point the defense team was trying to make yesterday in the Russian court is to note to them that while marijuana is illegal in Russia, it is used for medicinal purposes in other countries, and Griner was officially prescribed it by a doctor. Griner pleaded guilty to drug charges earlier this month, but the State Department says she is there wrongfully detained. Her guilty plea and this trial is seen as a way to get a lighter sentence while the U.S. government figures out a way to get her out. The most likely way she may get out is probably a prisoner swap, the U.S. exchanging a Russian prisoner or multiple prisoners in exchange for Griner. And finally, for those of you struggling in the home buying market, it doesn't appear to be getting easier when it comes to rent either. The Zumper National Rent Index shows rents climbing across the country. The median monthly price for a newly listed one-bedroom apartment climbed 11% over last year to nearly $1,500 a month. New York City topped the list as the most expensive market in the country. A one-bedroom apartment on average will cost you just under $3,800 a month, according to the July report. That is actually up 41% over last year. New York was among the top five U.S. cities where the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment grew the most last year. Number one on the list, Austin, Texas. Rents there are up more than 108% over last year. The average one-bedroom there is $3,200 a month. Number two, Jersey City, New Jersey. They had a 51.6% increase over last year. An average apartment, one-bedroom apartment, will cost you about $4,400 a month there. Number three, Tempe, Arizona, with a 49% annual increase. Rent there for a one-bedroom is $1,700 a month. The aforementioned Big Apple, New York City, is fourth on the list with that 41% increase over last year. And Salt Lake City, Utah, rounds us out at number five with a 40.5% increase over last year. A one-bedroom apartment on average, if it was just listed, will cost you just under $1,700 a month in Salt Lake. The list also includes, thankfully, some most affordable cities. There are three cities where the average rent for a one-bedroom costs $700 a month or less. They are Akron, Ohio, Wichita, Kansas, and Lubbock, Texas. Okay, now to our conversation with Benjamin Sledge. We first spoke, as I said, last year on Instagram during the Afghan withdrawal, and I'm very excited to have him back for his new book, Where Cowards Go to Die. Sledge is a former staff sergeant in the U.S. Army who was wounded during his tour in Afghanistan. He then actually came back and then volunteered to head over to Iraq a couple years later, where he served 15 months. He's the recipient of a Bronze Star Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals for his actions overseas. Upon returning home, he began work in mental health and addiction recovery. I think Sledge brings a candid perspective to war, the toll it takes on our veterans. He talks about his experience with me and how we can help the nearly 2 million veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan in this country. I think you're going to learn a lot from this conversation, what it's like to be at war, what it's like to come home, and the things that veterans wish we civilians did for them on a day-to-day basis. Staff Sergeant Benjamin Sledge, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me back on. I am so glad to have you back on. Uh, We last spoke at the height of the the mess of the withdrawal last year in 2021. I know it was taking a toll on you. And before we get started here, how, how are you processing it all a year later? I'm good. You know, I actually, uh, my wife shortly after was like, you're kind of a crazy person. You should probably do some counseling again. And I was like, all right, that's fair. So I did that kind of process what I was going through. And it was crazy though. I met all these other veterans who were going through the exact same thing. And when Iraq fell, we didn't have that issue, but Afghanistan, we, we did, um, which I found really interesting. Yeah. I remember when we were talking last year, um, you were also talking about 
Vietnam vets kind of reliving their trauma because of some of the, the, the imagery was almost identical at times as we watched the images last August to the, uh, the images of the um, final days of, of Vietnam. But we have a lot to get to. I want to do a quick recap. Sledge and I first spoke uh, live a year ago on Instagram during the height of that very messy withdrawal. I'd interviewed top politicians, military officials, and I wanted to get a reaction from a veteran. Um, so many veterans, nearly 800,000 Americans fought in the war over two decades. They put their lives on the line. They'd lost friends. And so I was connected with him online. Uh, he had written extensively about his experience both during the war and after the war and gave me one of the most honest portrayals of the war and the impact it was having on veterans. So Sledge, I, I really appreciate the perspective you brought me last year and um, and excited to get into your new book here. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it, and I mean... Even in the new book, I talk about the Afghanistan withdrawal very shortly because we had to add an addendum very quickly. You know, I contacted my publisher, but yeah. um, I, I think really the book is more or less an encapsulation of the last 20 years as far as like what happened to veterans, but more importantly, what happens after the events when they come home to a country that is extremely divided and no longer feels like home. So the book has a provocative title and it's not... Uh, the typical title you see for war books, uh, you called it Where Cowards Go to Die. Um, talk to me about that title, um, what inspired it, and what you mean by it. So what inspired it was really, I was in Iraq, and I read the book I Am Legend uh, by Richard Matheson. Do not watch the Will Smith movie. It's terrible. It doesn't even follow the book. Um, but the book is phenomenal and has influenced you know the great writers of our time, like Stephen King. And it's actually considered a horror novel, even though it's it feels like it takes place in the 1970s and deals with vampires. And this guy is basically the last man on earth um, while the rest of his society has been taken over by this, this vampire disease. Um, and the last three words of the book are, I am legend. And I was like, that is sick, man. And it ties it all together. And I was like, if I ever wrote a book one day, I would do something like that. And so years later, I get, I get this book deal with uh, my publisher and um I had this epiphany when I came home several, several years later when I started working through like what I had been through in Iraq and Afghanistan. And really, really what I came to the conclusion was is there were a lot of things that I did in combat that were not heroic. And there's a lot of things that people do in combat that are not heroic, yet we can get painted um, that way. But the reality of the situation was is I came home and I buried a lot of it. And it, it began to fester from the inside. And so for me, I came to the conclusion that in life, you'll either live as a coward or die as a coward because of the fact that you've refused to address those that unresolved trauma. And a, a lot of veterans are doing that where we head to the bottle or we head to pills or we get put on mood altering substances for the rest of our life as opposed to confronting what we went through and growing stronger out of that. And when you do that, when you grow stronger out of that, the cowardice that lurks inside the human heart has to die. And bit by bit and cut after cut, you have to cut out that cancer of the soul that's stripping you of your humanity because you've been dwelling on the past and what was instead of what can be. And so my conclusion was, is in life, um, you know, a coward has to die either way. You either die as a coward or you have to kill the coward inside you. What's been the reaction from... Uh some of the some of the guys that you fought with um, and just the reaction generally um, to the title from other veterans. They loved it. 
they they really loved it because I think most of us have been somewhat tired of the war genre books that have come out. Um, the the joke in the publishing industry is that if you're a Navy SEAL, you get a book deal. And nothing against those guys. I worked with them, uh, and and that's they're 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 killing it. But the the thing that we you have to remember is like that's less than like one percent of the military. That doesn't en- encompass like what your average soldier went through. The other ninety nine percent of us. And out of that, uh, I've gotten messages, emails, texts, you know, direct messages about like, hey, thank you for finally telling our story and the issues that I'm still dealing with to this day. And I think the most powerful moment for me that really happened is that I'm hitting not just the global war on terror veterans, but Vietnam veterans as well. I had uh, my, my friend's dad reach out, never knew he was a Vietnam veteran out through, through my entire life. I would go over to his house, we'd play as kids. And this dude was a Vietnam veteran with, you know, had fought and served and wards the whole deal. And, uh, he was like, this really hit home for me. And what I experienced in Vietnam and the stories that we didn't tell. Um, and so he was like, I need to, to process this, uh, more now that, you know, he's in his seventies. So that, that to me is huge. Yeah. There's, uh, somewhere between two and 3 million Americans served in either Iraq or Afghanistan in the past uh, 20 years. Uh, and so there's so many stories to be told there. Your book uh, takes us back and forth at times. I feel like I'm in a film where you're doing flashbacks back to America. Now you're back to the back to the front lines. Uh, you introduce us uh, to some of the um, servicemen who uh, fought alongside you, Starnes, Gonzo. We, we start to meet all these characters. Um, and I love the history and the context that you provide in the book. And I learned, by the way, um, Sledge, that your grandfather... Uh, served. He was the supplier for General Patton Scotch. <laughs> he right? was. Yeah. Yeah. He was General Patton Scotch supplier. I, I'll summarize that real quick. Um, it's yeah. in the book, but basically he missed the D-Day jump because he caught pneumonia. Um, he was with the 82nd Airborne. He got transferred to Germany at uh, Patton's third ID. So while he's there, him and his buddy, these other officers hatched this plan to hijack a mortuary affairs vehicle and fill it to the brim with Johnny Walker Red and bring it back to the officer club. Patton walks in and they're they're getting a little blitzed and they're like, he's like, hey boys, where can I get some of that fine Johnny Walker Red? And my grandfather's like, well, that depends on who you are. And he turns around, there's a nickel-plated revolver like at his face where, you know, Patton's standing. <laughs> and so he starts trading with them. So it, it sort of gave me these images from that Forrest Gump sequence where like Forrest is talking about like his daddy's daddy, his daddy's daddy, you know, that everyone served mm-hmm. through the years. Yeah, um, that's and us. So, and so there's a, there's a, it goes back in your family. And so I, I want to start there with you. Um, before you were an author uh, of this new book, Where Cards Go to Die, uh, you were a soldier. You served nine months in Afghanistan. You served 15 months in Ramadi, uh, Iraq. Um whether it was your grandfather or, or uh, tell me about what inspired you to join the military um, and, and what first brought you to ex- Afghanistan. It, it really is that, you know, Forrest Gump moment. And we joke in the military, we say it runs in the blood. You look at it like all of Patton's kids and they serve too. Um, and we traced it as far back as a, a general under Napoleon for our family lineage. And so it was just kind of something that you did um, in our family 
But also at the same time for me, there was kind of this fascination with that and the culture and the way that I would look at my grandfather and, you know, the uncles and every, everyone, but really, 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 this is the real reason I joined. Cause I, I had to pay for college, you know, my, my parents, much, much more practical reasons. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My parents are like, you're going to college. And I'm like, great. How are we paying for it? They're like, figure it out. I was like, guess I'm joining the military. And, uh, so I joined in 1999, man. Like Bill Clinton was president, which is crazy. It was peacetime army. A lot of times it was like stripes. Um, you know, you're goofing off like Bill Murray having these barbecues and beer. And then September 11th hits and everything changes. Everything. The training. Everyone's like, you know, it's like that scene in Starship Troopers, which I reference a lot in the book, where, uh, you know, Johnny Rico's wa- washing out and then everybody starts running. And it's like, it's war. We're going to war. And that when I got to Fort Bragg, that's that was the feeling um, that you had there. So I, I started all this training and language school and I would come home for three months, get orders, leave home for three months, get orders, leave. And then that that's really how it went. It was, I was completing training during those years from 2001 to 2003 and we invade Iraq and immediately they need, you know, it's a dual pronged war effort. So they need half of our unit goes to Iraq and the other half goes to Afghanistan. And that's how I ended up in Afghanistan. Right. The, the war in Afghanistan begins in the fall of 2001, just after 9-11. Right. Um, the war is now uh, nearly two years old in 2003 when the U.S. then invades Iraq in a separate operation. Correct. Um, but just after the launch of the war in Iraq, you get your, your papers and you're headed to Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which was really weird uh, because I thought for sure I would be going to Iraq. But I, I think that's the thing. Like the U.S. media's eye of Sauron just like suddenly shifted to Iraq and everybody kind of forgot. We we're like, oh, we're done, you know, with Afghanistan. But you had all those cross-border operations and you had Taliban and Al-Qaeda running back and forth from Pakistan and launching these attacks like on the border area. So that was a really violent um, area that people forgot. And the only people that actually came out to visit us because we were we we would just get shellacked all the time with you know heavy artillery and and raining down mortars in from Taliban, and uh, the, it was was Laura Logan uh, who at the time was the chief news correspondent for sixty Minutes Two, and they they kind of were like I think people have forgotten about Afghanistan, <laughs> and when, as soon as she gets up there, she gets blown up by a landmine. So it was it was really really violent even where I was at and everybody had kind of forgotten about that. So they just assumed that I was sitting on a bay base and like eating cake and Kandahar. And I, I, I truly believe that's what a lot of the American populace thought at the time. And then that became, you know, this 20 year stretch of combat operations and violent pockets would continually break out throughout the country, depending on what year it was, you know, for, for some years it was at the Helmand province with the Marines. Right. Uh, so 9-11 happens. We're in pursuit of uh, bin Laden. Uh, it would take us 10 years uh, to find him. And then another 10 years. Uh, we knew where of- he was the whole time. <laughs> like we literally would receive intelligence reports while we were there. We knew he was in Pakistan. Like yeah. and we knew the, the area too. So And there was, there was just a lot of sensitivity about the fact uh-huh. that bin Laden was in Pakistan and what's our relationship with Pakistan and, and et cetera, et cetera. So eventually they get him. The, the war... Uh, though will will take twenty years, um, mm-hmm. and I know that you know you've met veterans from various parts of the war, and you've watched it. So you're there though in two thousand and three, um, right. and one of the things you write about 
is uh, an attack that uh, you experience in December of 2003, uh, Taliban, Al-Qaeda launching attack on your base. You're wounded. You're a 21-year-old a kid mm-hmm. at the time. I really was a kid. I was this kind of, you know, young punk kid that was trying to figure out college and do schooling and the military at the time. And uh, I didn't, I was really afraid to go to war. And that's the thing that other, you know, I, I masked it with bravado, but deep down I was, I was actually really scared. And um, the book opens actually with that day. So we're not really ruining anything for anyone, but uh, so the Taliban and Al Qaeda had launched a complex attack against our base because of the fact that during 2003, like early in the war effort, we didn't have Kellogg Brown and Root or any of those uh, subsidiaries of Halliburton. We would employ these are sorry, Kellogg Brown and Root are some of the contractors. Contractors, that the, correct. The U.S. government had basically um, given billions of dollars to to manage the war operation. Right. And a lot of politicians got super rich off of it and would fly into the country and check their assets. <laughs> so anyway, that's neither here nor there. I talk a little bit about that in the book. But what had happened was we would employ local Afghans on the base to do some of the menial tasks. We figured, you know, we're going to send money into their local villages and economy. Unfortunately, we super inflated the economy, which was a bad idea, which led to inflationary prices. But um, out of that, the some of them, and, and it's just Afghan culture is different, especially on the tribal border areas. They'll just literally sell out their family members for the right price. And so some of them talked um, and fed them intelligence. And so they knew every strategic position to hit like on the base. They were targeting our bunkers. They were trying to aim for the tactical operations center. And my job that day was to, to rally with uh, a friend of mine in the intelligence community and get these Afghans to safety. And we got them inside this corridor of our chow hall. And we just, we didn't make it in time. Um, this this 107 millimeter rocket exploded about seven feet from where I was. And so I, the world for me just goes black, just absolutely black. And I wake up and it it's, it's kind of like the movies. It really is. Uh, you know, is there's this buzzing noise and I feel like I'm underwater and there's this Afghan man who he'd got in the corridor standing over me and he's terrified. He's trying to help me up and I'm waving him off and I'm looking down at my arms and there's, there's these translucent flecks. So I begin to rub at them and there was one window right outside where we were and it blew all the glass. And so I didn't know. I was so confused. I was rubbing glass in my arms. I'm looking at my hand, hands and palms and they're bleeding and then I look for my friend and I can't find him. So my first thought is, my God, he's been vaporized. Uh, and then I see this door that's been blown off the hinges and I, I run into that room and it looks like a toddler is throwing a tantrum everywhere. There's tables and chairs just tossed about. And then there's like a huge blood trail over to the corner. Uh, it looks like a scene out of The Walking Dead. And my buddy's sitting over there and he's rocking back and forth. He's just ghost white and he's holding his arm. And there's just blood. And so we pull out, I pull out my dagger, we slice open his sleeve and this other guy comes in to help out another soldier. And it looks like a pop can has exploded in my buddy's tricep and it's hit one of his major arteries. And I'm like, oh no. And so we get him into that corridor. We start patching him up. Um, this is a funny part, um, but we, we didn't have, we were still using Vietnam air tactics at the time. 
So everybody had their own like pressure dressing gauze. And the, the doctrine was, is that you never used your gauze on somebody else. You use the one that's on theirs. We had been blown to kingdom come. So we didn't even know where it was. Couldn't find it. And we're like, well, we can't use ours on this guy that's bleeding out, even though we are, we're not. And so we're like finding rags in the area to like, you know, tie, tie off a pressure dressing. And eventually I run out the back door to try and retrieve medics. And um, we had erected the, kind of this blast barrier and uh to where the triage rally point was and um that's like when the fear hit me and uh and you know i'm pounding on this wall i'm screaming my hands are trembling everywhere and i was like this is it we're gonna die this is this is how it goes down and the only thing that kept me moving as opposed to freezing up was the fact that i knew my friend was gonna die and so i found my legs another rock came in knocked me down and then I, I run into the room and I just I just look at the other soldier and I just scream and I'm like they've blocked access to triage where the hell do we go? And um, luckily uh, he he the other guy ended up being the big hero of the day. I I didn't I was I was really injured at the time. I didn't know it. I was also extremely scared and that fear was paralyzing. So I just looked at him after and I was like, uh, it's your turn to get blown up. <laughs> So he runs out the front door, he's able to get the medics and he, we, we start, we try to start an IV line and then I begin slipping in and out of lucidity. Um, and eventually this, this is what I'm told after and what I write in the book. Cause I had the guys, you know, recount and did multiple interviews, but somehow we got a, a stretcher called in a medevac helicopter to get, uh, get him out of there because he, he wasn't going to make it if we didn't. And uh, we run him out to the tarmac, at, which is just like all these pebble stones everywhere. And the only thing that I remember is just standing on the tarmac and I'm clutching his rifle to my chest. And I'm just covered in blood, like all over my arm, his, mine, I don't know. Um, and I'm just kind of just staring at this helicopter fade into the distance and I'm just rocked to the core. And then eventually they, they start checking my injuries and they're like, all right, we got to get him out of there. Um, but they were going to try and evac me to Kandahar because it wasn't urgent critical. And unfortunately there were sandstorms. So I had to sit on base for another three days, just all busted up arms, like in a splint. Cause they can't even cast it, you know, and they're just patching me up and yeah. Oof. Uh, I, I can't imagine how challenging it was at times to write this book. I mean, just you tell that story, um, you know, as somebody who, who wasn't there, you know, just this near death experience that you had mm -hmm. um, running on pure adrenaline, um, you know, um, seeing just complete chaos around you. What what was it like writing writing this book as you started to, you know, kind of go through your memories um, and and. Was it difficult? Was it easy? Was it helpful? Was it challenging? Lay, lay out the experience for me. So I, I wrote, it's weird. I wrote the book in multiple areas, you know, on friends' porches during the pandemic because we were staying with them or my parents' house um, or even in Austin, Texas before, you know, the pandemic began and, and we moved to Colorado. Um, and I would write and I would often go to public places just because it was like, oh man, I, I don't want to write this at home because I'm a, I'm afraid I'll, you know, shut down. Um, so there were all these like breweries and coffee shops where people would just watch me 
like kind of have tears rolling. Was there was there one in particular? Face. Was there one in particular that was the uh, worst for writer writer's block or the best? Uh, Olivia, the best um, was actually here in Colorado Springs where I live now. I'm actually doing my book launch party there this Friday with like a ton of people, you know, from Fort Carson and and my friends. But uh, it, it's called Brass Brewery. It's a veteran-owned brewery. They have like all these photos on the wall, and you can get your photo on the wall. And eventually, and that's what we're gonna do. They're gonna put it up there. Um, but the owner fought in Ramadi too. And so when I found that out, I was like, man, I'm going to come here and write. Cause there was, there was even signs and it was like, you know, this many miles to Ardennes, this many miles, it was everything from World War II. And I saw Ramadi and I was like, Hey, I fought in Ramadi. And he was like, me too. And so it really gave me the space to get my head back there without it being too overwhelming, but it was still hard, you know, cause I, I'm interviewing my friends who were there with me. And forcing them to relive some of their most traumatic incidences too. Um, and one of the guys in the book wouldn't even touch it, the story, or even read the manuscript. He's like, dude, I, I know you got it until like the book came out. And it's been really, really healing for him because he was just afraid it would just shut him down. You know, it, it's hard. Yeah, I, I, I remember when we spoke last year, uh, Sledge, you had said that by the time 2004 ended, you were in Afghanistan in 2003. Uh, seven men you had fought with or been next to uh, uh, were dead. Three of them from your unit that included your best friend, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Um, what what has it been like to to process those losses? And and how did this book, writing this book, impact uh, your your memories and, and how you process your experience there? I, I actually dedicated the book to Kyle um, just because Kyle wanted to be a journalist that was his goal in life. And he was going to college to get his like journalism degree. And he was already covering events like the Miss America and Miss Universe pageant, like the the one down in Panama. And I think it's kind of funny in a way that I was the one that became a writer and, you know, he died. So I I really wanted to honor his memory uh, in that aspect. But the, the thing, you know, working through all of that and, and Kyle and the deaths has been its own painstaking moments of, of trauma. So when I dedicated the book to Kyle, you know, I started thinking about all these other guys that had died too. And as I was writing it, I began to meet other veterans like on Instagram and we began to talk. And I met this guy, George, via Instagram randomly and he had fought in Ramadi the same time as me. Turns out we, we knew each other, but didn't know each other. And then we started talking about a friend that we lost, um, Sergeant First Class Bouchon. And he has such a, a tragic story because, you know, he's he's got a young son and a wife. And then several years later, his wife died from cancer. So that poor kid lost both of his parents. And so you find out about stuff like that and you have to relive it and, and go through this. But I, I could never figure out why... I was just still so impacted by like the deaths of the guys that I served with, especially Kyle. And then I I found out that there's all these studies that show that men and women who lose their friends in combat, even some 30 years removed from the incident, their level of grief from that incident is the equivalent to that of somebody who's lost their spouse within the first six months. And it's just because of that depth, that, camaraderie that brotherhood and it weighs extremely heavy on your soul and so 
you know, Memorial Day kind of becomes this day where it's just this moment where you reflect a lot more. Because like for me as a kid, it was just like barbecues and fun. And it's still those things for, for me. But, you know, I, I always keep there's a picture of Kyle sitting right here next to me that uh, I keep when I write um, because I want to keep his dream alive. One of the things that struck me, you've referred to Afghanistan, and I think this was in our conversation last year as well, as a toxic relationship, one that you want to let go of, and you just can't uh, quite let go of it. Uh, and I think you come up with multiple metaphors for how yeah. Afghan vets and, and you experience that. Um, you ended up fighting in, in Iraq after that, but just to kind of put a, a period on Afghanistan, talk to me about why or what you've come to terms with when you talk about Afghanistan as a toxic relationship. It's the one you think of. And yet like all the time it's, and I use the metaphor of it's, it's like the girl that you're dating that you, everybody knows is like the toxic relationship and she's ruining your life. And she finally like sets your clothes on fire and throws them out the window. And, and you're like, but I still love her kind of, kind of moment. And that's what it's been like for us because we, we fought there for so long. Um, you know, my own blood is in the sand there. Uh, my friends that have died is in, and you know, the mountains and sands there. And it's just, you're like, oh man. And you want to let it go. Cause you realize just how like, it's not healthy to dwell on that stuff, but you just, you can't seem to, to let go of that environment. And then when the fall happened, that was just like, putting wrapping it in icing packaging it up in a neat little bow and being like here is all your traumas just straight to you um gift wrapped because now and even a year removed you're, you're looking at it and afghanistan is the largest humanitarian crisis on the planet right now they're on the brink of famine um we cannot get our interpreters out the the siv the special immigrant visa process is an absolute nightmare i i truly believe still, got, still a year later still still i truly believe the government just doesn't want these people here like they it, it it's not that they can't do it it's just that they don't want to and i i started working with uh different groups that are doing the work including afghan interpreters who've made it here to the united states and uh, it's the, the amount of red tape is at utterly ridiculous, even though the funding is pouring in to get these people out. And out of that, the, the tough part too, is recognizing that the Afghans just rolled over and, you know, like a dog when, um, the country fell. Right. They, the, uh, you're, you're talking about the Afghan military that mm -hmm. the U S had invested tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions trying to build up trying to train, and the Taliban took them out in a matter of weeks. Not even <laughs> practically days. days. Yeah. And, and so now you watch Ukraine and everybody's willing to fight Russia. And, and the Afghans are like, mm. and I, I think that's the tough part is they never really cared. There's never been a nationalistic identity as far as Afghanistan, you know, the same way that we have this this identity that we are Americans. It's, it's much more tribal. Everybody just kind of wants to be left alone. And as long as the Taliban doesn't mess with them that much, they're comfortable kind of doing whatever they want. But you talk to the people that live there and they'll tell you just how awful it was. And, and a few of the, the interpreters that I've spoke with, they're like, look, man, I lived under the Taliban. It was awful. 
And we didn't have roads or electricity or cell phones. We were constantly wondering where our next meal was. And so the Americans came in and provided all this stability. And now my neighbors have cell phones and cars and, you know, they're not worrying about their next meal. They said, but at the same time, you know, in America, you give your kids 18 years to live under your roof. They said, you gave us two extra years. We should have been able to stand up for by ourselves. Was Were you surprised when you saw um, the country collapse the way it did uh, and the Taliban uh, take, take the country within a matter of uh, days and weeks last year? Based on your experience and take me back to your time there, is there any memory or experience you had uh, during your time there in 2003 that was telling or that now suddenly things made sense in 2021? Nah, it, nothing made sense in 2021. Like, I, except for like what I just said that there there was no national identity forum. So when you would, me being out on the border and the tribal areas, that was the only thing that kind of clicked. I was like, they just don't really care as long as somebody provides the power and infrastructure and the money to fund schools and whatever, then they're cool. Uh, so that's the only click part. But I knew, I knew inevitably that it was going to fall. I mean, you look at kind of the deal that Trump. Uh, had already um, with the Taliban prior to the Biden administration taking over and just totally botching the withdrawal. Like it, that to me is still the part that's utterly baffling is I'm like, we're the, the largest superpower. We run the seas. We have the most prolifically advanced military in the world. You could have literally just told the Taliban, hey, go pound sand or we're going to use our eyes in the skies to drone strike you guys. Um into oblivion because we can and we'll do whatever we want. Uh, and they literally could have done that. Instead, they're like, no, we're going to, we literally left Afghanistan like with a dog with its tail between its legs. And it was so embarrassing uh, on so many levels. And I didn't think it would happen that fast. I don't think anybody predicted that it would happen as fast as it did. All the analysts, all the intel analysts, we knew that eventually the Taliban would kind of come back and influence power. And the hope was is that maybe the Afghan militia and, and forces and the military would fight back. Probably not. But nobody expected it to go down the way that it did. I actually find it very interesting because you mentioned Ukraine. And I was talking to um, former uh, director of the CIA a couple of days before Russia invaded Ukraine. And he's like, Kiev falls in three days. Russia takes out Ukraine in three days. And it was so interesting because the opposite happened. And then their same assessment of Afghanistan, again, was the opposite, where they're like, the Afghan military could probably hold this for like at least a year, et cetera. That falls in a matter of days. And whereas the CIA was like, we're going to lose Ukraine in a couple of days. And they're still holding six mm-hmm. months later. Yeah, it's it's wild. And that's the the oxymoron of intelligence. You know, I always think of that scene in Team America World Police, where intelligence is this big monitor screen and it keeps screwing everything up. And, you know, the guy who's in charge is like kind of the CIA director is like, bad intelligence. That's a very bad intelligence. And that's kind of how I think of it now. Um, you were saying you still have friends who are talking to interpreters. W- w- what are the uh, people that you know who are talking to folks in Afghanistan? Uh, what are they experiencing, both when it comes to the U.S. government? And what are the people in Afghanistan telling them, a, you know, nearly a year later under Taliban rule? I think one of the greatest articles that I've read in the past year is George Packer's piece in The Atlantic called The Betrayal. And it really encapsulates still what's going on uh, as far as you have these Afghan interpreters that are still daily reaching out to 
anybody they were they were in contact trying to get out of the country for fear of their family being killed. But a lot of the organizations now are just providing relief and you have to do it in a really insane manner. Like they'll transfer money to this one place in California and then to this other place to ensure that the families get it. And then the families have to take like a photo that they got the money so that they can get groceries. And, and, and really, I think more or less it's become about addressing the humanitarian crisis as far as getting people not to starve and taking care of their families while they continue to work to kind of get them out. Um, so it's, you know, like I said, just, just kind of a mess still. One of the things you get into in the book and, and you prioritize in the book is talking about the um, veterans experience here at home after the war. Um, and we've talked about your Afghanistan experience. You're, we're going to get you to Iraq here, but you come home after Afghanistan. You talk about your mental health being impacted, um, that you have a purpose and a direction in the military. But then when you come home, you sort of lose your purpose um, you also use the uh, term that war is a dopamine slot machine. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about coming home from Afghanistan and how just a couple years later you find yourself volunteering to go to Iraq. Uh, it's, it's always hard for me to admit because I, I always still I feel torn in two where I'm like, I love war. War is awesome. It's ah. Yeah, it, because it gave me such a profound sense of meaning and purpose. And then at the same time, like I'm like, I hate war. I will do anything to ensure that we don't go to war. Um, I don't want my kids to go to war. I don't want anybody to go to war. Like I want peace. Like peace is better. Um, and so I always feel split in two, you know, because I'm like part pacifist and then part like combat hungry warrior. And so when I came home from Afghanistan and, you know, the, the book starts with me hovering over this small Afghan child who has got a sucking chest wound, which is a piece of shrapnel that collapsed his lung. Um, and you begin to see stuff like that often while you're overseas. So there's collateral damage. There's always going to be collateral damage. There's, there's no such thing as it not happening in combat, whether by Americans or the other side. And you're forced to see that. Uh, and, and you come home and you try to talk about your experiences to some degree, but you develop that gallows humor. Uh, like a lot of, you know, police officers and first responders and EMTs and doctors and stuff. And I remember there's this story in the book called dog strike, um, where I'm talking about how we're killing these dogs and you're going to have to read it. And, and I do this specifically so that people listening to this are like, Oh my gosh, this guy's just randomly killing dogs. So imagine telling that story and, And then people look at you like you're this monster, like you're this horrible human being. And and they're trying to be polite about it, Um, but their body language shifts, their um, demeanor, they they try and smile, but it's fake. And we can catch up on that because that's what we pick up on in war, especially when you're going house to house and trying to figure out who's lied to you. And so it shuts you down. And, And then on top of that, you try to go to a job. Um, and everybody in the job is trying to trample each other on the way to the top, uh, because they, they want that next promotion or their boss is letting them catch the proverbial shrapnel in the trenches to make more money. And a lot of people are unhappy in their jobs and, and they're constantly trying to get to the next tier and ladder. Whereas in the military, we're taught one leaders eat last. So all your youngest enlisted eat first, the generals and everybody else, they eat last. Second everybody's willing to take a bullet for you. So you come home to an environment where nobody has your back 
and your leaders are just kind of tools. And it's extremely alienating. It's it's, it's an alternate universe. It's I mean, totally alternate it's universe. Remarkable for for mm-hmm. those of us who who haven't served, we you know we we take for granted the the corporate ladder and the work for the workplace. And you're returning home, and you're like, this is not the world that I know. Mm-hmm. So war then becomes that dopamine slot machine where you're like, well, at least I know overseas, I have people who have my back. I have people who care for me. Um, I feel this profound sense of mission, purpose, and direction. I know what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's, here's the objective, complete the objective. And so when I came home from Afghanistan, I was really struggling and, and, you know, my parents had to, and family and friends uh, had to stage an intervention and they're like, you need help. And I was like, probably true. (laughs) And so I get into counseling, I start working through, you know, my experiences, but I find myself missing war, you know, and I'm like, I'm never going to go back. And then Gonzo in the book, you know, who you you mentioned earlier, he just kind of pins me up against the wall one day. And he's like, Hey, we're going to Iraq. And I'm like, no, no, no way, man. Um, And the problem is, is in the military, um, there's, there's this question that your parents will ask you when you're a kid. It's like, if all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you do it? And you're like, no mom, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> but when you're in the military, you totally would. You'll, you'll get into the dumbest situations and circumstances just because they're your buddies and you fought with them. So that's, that's what I did. He was like, Hey, we're, we're going to the city of Ramadi, which at the time was the most violent city on earth during the surge from 2006 to 2007. It accounted for half of all deaths that happened in the United States Marine Corps and half of all daily attacks that happened in the country of Iraq. So I volunteered for another deployment because it gave me a profound sense of mission, purpose, and direction once more. Yeah, this is when uh, there was a, a time when they they felt the war in Iraq was lost. They announced this surge, you know, we're going to take back Iraq. Um, I remember John McCain and some others were, you know, huge proponents of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they want to turn the tide for what is a, you know, three or four years into the war. I'm talking to a former staff sergeant, uh, U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Benjamin Sledge. Uh, He served uh, tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He has a new book out, Where Cowards Go to Die. Uh, We've talked about his time in Afghanistan. Now he's gotten himself to Iraq. Uh, But (laughs) I should note, by the way, you had just gotten married to your college sweetheart. Yeah. um, And yet you're like, I'm I'm off to war again. Um, We all did it. You know, Gonzo, his wife was pregnant. <laughs> like, and he's like, I got to go. I got to take care of these guys. I got to end this insurgency. And I'm newly married. And I'm like, I got to go. Gonzo's going. And we all did it. Tons of us had new relationships or, you know, new babies or, or pregnant spouses. And, and we went. And... The, the other thing too was I think people forget like a lot of us were on stop loss, which meant that even if we wanted to get out of the military, we couldn't because they needed us because there was no draft. So how do you stop people from leaving the military when you have no draft? You tell them you cannot leave the military. Mm-hmm. So the, there was also this kind of mindset. We're like, oh man, this isn't going to end anytime soon. We're in Afghanistan. We're in Iraq. We might as well just knock out another deployment. And that's what we did, you know, we, and, uh, that it, it wrecked my marriage. It really did. And I I wasn't a good, you know, spouse. Um, and out of the four years, like dating and married that we were together, because tragically it, it ends in divorce. She leaves while I'm in Iraq. Um, 
we, I was only home for a year and nine months. So we never even really had time to work on a relationship. You know, most of our <clears throat> time was literally spent over a phone, uh, mm-hmm. with long breaks. Like, you know, in Afghanistan, it was like, I would call her on a sap phone once every two weeks. And I'd be like, Hey, I'm going to be on mission. You may not hear from me for a while. Don't freak out. That doesn't mean that I'm dead. Um, same thing in Iraq, you know? And I, I was just, I would head out to these combat outposts and it, it just, it, it wrecked so many relationships that I saw, like, you know, the army and military in general tries to say that they focus on the family, that they're family friendly. And that's, that's just not true. Um, you know, cause I, I just see the kids suffer from it. I see, you know, our relationships suffer from it. And a ton of us, there was like 30 of us in our unit and like half of us are divorced now. Um, or, and you know, for me, I'm remarried and been, uh, we're coming up on 11 years and, and everything. And I have plans to, you know, be with my wife till I'm dead. Cause I take those vows seriously, but that's, that's the vow. Yep. Yeah, yeah, for better or worse. And right. like the this isn't a side. The American populace is like, as long as you make me happy. I was like, that's not what you said at the altar, though. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, that's the way it goes. So your Iraq experience was double the length of your Afghan experience. You were 15 months <laughs> there. Um, talk to me about the, the differences uh, in, in combat and your experiences in, in Iraq versus the um, time you spent in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was it was really interesting because it's um, I was in the mountainous area and you're going to villages and a lot of it's fighting. You know they they would stage on top of these these mountain high ground areas while we would travel in these dry creek beds called Wadi and launch complex attacks or they'd hit the base. If you've ever seen um, Restrepo or the uh, the outpost, it's very similar to that where they just rain down stuff and they're trying to overtake the base. Whereas in Iraq, it's urban combat. So Iraq, when I got there, kind of looked like it had stopped in the 1970s as far as like progress and stuff. But sounds, I mean, it, it, it sounds about right. That's when Saddam took over. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the the thing was, though, it looked like all those pictures you see in World War II where all the buildings are just bombed to hell because of the fact that, you know, we've hit them with JDAMs or that you know the insurgency there has wired houses to explode when soldiers walk in and it's all urban combat so you're going house to house to house to house and you don't know who your enemy is a lot of times because the populace is really against you and and you have to think about it this way the the biggest mistake that we made in the iraq war was firing the iraqi military uh, where we literally had a group of trained soldiers and said, you're no longer going to get your pension and disabilities. This was Saddam's military who we had defeated. Yeah. And we decided to let go of that trained, loyal military. Right. Uh, and we should have been like, come on, we'll absorb you in. And I think it was Wolfowitz who did that dumbest decision that former, we could have ever made. Former uh, se- uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense. under Right. Yeah. Right. And so that happens and that creates a threat a thriving insurgency. And on top of that, we begin to destroy infrastructure. So the way that I explain it to the American populace often is like, imagine if the Chinese government somehow came in and took over the United States. It never happened. Um, but they they then start wrecking our infrastructure to where we don't have air conditioning. Imagine you're in Texas and you don't have air conditioning during the summer and it's hot. Of course, you're going to be pissed. And of course, you're going to take up arms. And of course, you're going to fight back against the people. That- and, and, and add to that, in this scenario, China's taken over and they're saying to the U.S. military, no, thanks. Uh, we don't need you. Go home. 
Bingo. Yeah. And you have all these trained soldiers. And so now you don't have water, sewage, electricity. Of course, you're going to have an insurgency on your hands. Like it, it, it was from step one. So that's what happened. And the, the thing that really helped us quell Ramadi was the fact that we started rebuilding the infrastructure and we got a consistent 18 hours of power to the day. So, you know, the coin, uh, the counterinsurgency operations that we had kind of developed were about, you know, flipping the local leaders and giving, feeding them contracts so that we could boost the infrastructure and the economy um, to make the people happy and, you know, get money in there. Also super inflating the economy, bad thing. But ultimately, once they had water, power, and sewage, that quells like a lot of the rebellion that's there. But Ramadi was just after the fall of Fallujah, after Phantom Fury, where like Jim Mattis and all them went in, all the insurgency like went into Ramadi, and that just became the epicenter of hell um, because it was just it was so violent. Like the Marines originally had control of the battle space, and then First Armor Division, we had to we had to send in tanks to an urban environment. Bradley fighting vehicles and it just got nuts. And it, it literally was kind of in some ways like World War II. We had like areas that were almost worked like demarcation zones that were insurgent held ground that you didn't go into because you'd be shot dead. What was the state of play when you left Iraq? Was uh, it better we were, than when you arrived? Yes. So Ramadi became the example for uh, the rest of the war effort. Uh, because we took the most violent city and then pacified it. And it was largely thanks to a guy named Captain Travis Patrickwin, who was a former special forces soldier that became the civil, affil- civil affairs and military liaison for the first armored division. But he got killed uh, sadly by an IED uh, when he was on a photo op with Ollie North and uh, journalists from Newsweek, uh, got hit by catastrophic IED, daisy chain. I mean, is is a mess. But his plan was that. It was like work on the tribal local warlords and sheikhs, flip them, um, feed them their contractors, projects, and then from there, rebuild the infrastructure and people are going to stop shooting at us. And it worked. And so by the end that we had left there, um, the attacks had, had really slowed and progress was being made. So we had left it better because when I got there, I mean, it was just, it was a free for all. It was, it was a party. It's, it's really been fits and starts for a while. Obama eventually pulls troops out, has to put troops back in. Mm-hmm. 15 years after your departure, we're still there. Biden's been trying to take the troops out of Iraq. We still can't quite get everyone out. But I want to, I want to go back to your story. Your wife, uh, during a phone call with you while you're in Iraq, mm-hmm. says, um, I'm leaving. You come home from Iraq. You write about the pain of divorce. You've spent a decade at war. Mm-hmm. You feel you have no future, no friends. Um, you're contemplating suicide at that yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now nowadays, like I have multiple certifications in crisis response, trauma care and suicide prevention. And spent 10 years in like the, the mental health world for a nonprofit before I launched out on my own. And, and uh, the thing was is, is that I didn't know this at the time, but I was taking all my emotions and all everything that I had experienced and making everything about me um, as far as like why I wanted to die. Because and the thing that people don't realize about suicide, it's not that people necessarily want to die. It's that they don't know how to resolve the pain and heartache that they're in. Because if you could resolve that, then there would 
be no need to feel as though you, you want to die. I didn't know how to resolve that. And so I was taking all my emotions, all my energy, everything and pouring it into, you know, look at how bad I've been screwed over. And I just don't know how to, you know, take away this pain. And, um, and I have no direction, no mission, no purpose, but I, I come to this epiphany while I'm sitting on, you know, this bed that, and this bedspread from Pottery Barn that I hated. I still hate it. I, I can picture it in my mind. I hate Paisley's now because of it. Um, but the, we, I'm sitting there and I was like, I'm still alive after two wars. I, I buried friend. I'm still here. And I've gone through the toughest circumstances that most people can't say. And if I take myself out, guess what? The insurgency, Taliban, and Al-Qaeda get that win they always want. And that's what they're getting from veterans right now. They're getting the I, W. I, I found this remarkable statistic. Seven, just over 7,000 uh, servicemen and women died in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years. Four times that number, more than 30,000 have committed suicide in the last 20 years. Right. They're getting the, the enemy is still getting the W because they're getting the win in their mind. And, and then they're, they go home. And... And out of that, um, it didn't fix my problems realizing that, but, and eventually I moved to Austin, Texas, where I'm, you know, I'm processing out of the military at that time and taking my block leave. And I, I just don't really have anywhere to go. And I'm living on my best friend's couch from college. And, uh, I, I, I just get worse. You know, I'm trying to pick fights with bouncers, dudes that are bigger than me. And I'm like, I will kill this dude. Like, cause you're just, you're scary at that point. Like, because you've seen combat, you know, combat, you're not afraid to die. You feel invincible. You feel invincible. And I'm like, man, I will, I will hurt people if I have to. And, and you get in this very dark space and headspace and you're dealing with depression, anxiety, um, you know, suicide ideation. And I wake up on my friend's couch um, one morning and, and I had grown up like in the buckle of the Bible belt in Oklahoma. And, and it was like a church kid growing up, but thought it was all just this big sham. And he, he looks at me and he goes, Hey man, can I take you to church? And I'm like, uh, what? Cause he's an atheist. And I was like, this is really weird. Um, and, and for him, you know, he's kind of at his wits end and he was like, maybe there's something there that you're seeking that will, will help you. And so we ended up going to this like church in Austin, Texas for people that are very skeptical of, you know, Christianity and faith or, or anything. And I, the thing that I came to the realization of, uh, as I begin to explore like questions of morality, um, my existential purpose, uh, you know, intellectual, all of that was that war is this very spiritual experience. And we don't like to admit that, but the reality is, is, it's like playing God when you're in combat. Cause if you mm. take an M4 carbine rifle and you point it at a man, you have the power to protect his life or take it away. And most of us think we know what's going to happen after we die. There's no formative consensus and it ranges across the board. Is it heaven reincarnation, the great nothingness? Cause we're evolutionary blips, you know, whatever your you, take you, is. You, you discuss in the book, you've read some philosophy. I do. Sledge. I yeah. love philosophy. I love yeah. it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm like reading guys that people are like, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're talking, you're, this is one of the few uh, veterans books where uh, you'll make references to Camus and various French philosophers. Yeah, yeah, Luke yeah. Ferry, like he's, his brief history of thought was super impactful for me because um, he, asked, he asked a question there that really messed me up. And it was, um, 
He says, for the first time in the history of humanity, a species has the means to destroy the planet and the species doesn't know where it's going. We've, and, we've uh, created our own era, by the way. If you look at like eras over the last millions of years, the dinosaurs, et cetera, we're now officially in the human era because we have impacted the climate and Earth so much. We've created our own environment. There yeah. And it's wild. When, and when you think deeply about those questions, and most of us are so busy numbing out, like whether that's social media or, or take your pick, whatever it is. Um, but war being this spiritual experience and, and getting back to that point, you know, none of us know like with certainty what's going to happen after we die. But if you point an M4 carbine rifle at a man and pull the trigger, you send him into the great unknown. And there's something very deeply spiritual about that. And Carl Marlantis is this New York Times bestseller who wrote two books, Matterhorn, about it. Uh, it's a fictional account of his time in Vietnam. And then what it's like to go to war is another one that he wrote that's about what it's like to go to war. And I cried throughout that entire book just was incredible. Um, but he says, you know, how can any, he said, we don't like to think about wars, like kind of the sacred spiritual space, but he said, how would any practicing Christian not call Calvary Hill a sacred space? And the same is true. If you kind of look at like even the major world religions, there's this, this suffering to things that provides, you know, almost clarity. And, and in America and beyond right now, our people don't have the language for suffering, especially veterans. We think it's needless. We don't think it can teach us anything. And so me coming home, I really had to explore all of that. And unfortunately, most of us are just checking out. We de- we're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with the pain. It's too hard. And I'm like, yeah, of course it's hard. But if you're willing to address it and go through it, you can come out stronger because hindsight's always twenty twenty. How did you get there? You talk in the book about how, you know, many veterans are like, oh, I'm not going to talk about my emotions. Like you're weak. Like, you know, uh, let's let's just work, work through all this stuff. What what was your process for healing? Like I know that religion helped you get there. Um, what, what are the various successful paths you've seen for uh, veterans who are experiencing this trauma post-war and, and how they begin the process for healing? So one of the, the key things for me was, you know, I didn't, I didn't talk about it because as I addressed earlier, I just saw the way that people would interact with me when I began to tell them stories about what would happen, you know, the dog thing, the, you know, kids being hurt. Yeah. Yeah. That ultimately this, this alternate reality you lived in when you try to talk about it with people who didn't experience that reality, they're at, at best pretending to be understanding at worst judging you. Right. And what happened was I, I met these two civilians in Austin, Texas who were okay with, uh, you know, what I was telling them. And, and really I opened up first because they opened up to me. And, and this is the travesty that we're doing with our veterans. We're like, we got to help veterans and they just won't talk to me. And I'm like, well, how are you approaching them? And they're like, well, I can see that they're struggling and I want them to tell me. And so I'm like, you know, and I'm just like, dude, this is so inappropriate. Like imagine you walked up to a rape victim and I'd be like, I can really tell you're struggling. Tell me about the worst moments of your life. And that's, that is effectively what we have done to our veteran community. And it's messed up. It's real messed up. Uh, and that's why they shut down. It, 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 it's just inappropriate. And so they just really began to open up about their lives. Suffering is a universal language that we all speak. And while our experiences may be different, ultimately they say they're the same. And, and that can combine like understanding and sympathy and empathy. And so for me, as they begin to open up, I became comfortable sharing. 
And then from there, um, they just really, really encouraged me to, to just focus in on, um, you know, growth and help me explore that purpose and meaning once more, as opposed to running from it. And, and out of that, uh, I, I began to study, you know, like I said, the, the whole philosophical aspect. And I, I would read like Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre and they were absurdist, you know, and, and I liked their, their writings, but that was the thing that I had come to the conclusion when I was overseas, life is absurd, doesn't have any meaning. So whatever, but that kind of makes you a nihilist too. And the myth of Sisyphus, where you push this rock up an endless hill, I was like, man, I'm pushing a rock of torment up an endless hill and I'm supposed to be happy and free, but I'm just tormented. And so I was like, I don't, I don't buy into this. So I, I had to explore that moral, the existential. And really that's where faith kind of played a, a very vital part in that journey because it was like, well, what does it look like if there is a higher power and that cares for humanity? And, and if I asked like really hard questions, well, does he not care about humanity because there's so much human, like evil and suffering? And so as I was able to go through those questions with them and then also just begin to share about my experiences and, and continuing to do counseling like EMDR therapy and um, and then just work through and grow out of that hardship and pain, I, I bounced back. And there's a kind of this bell curve of adversity where some people fall apart and recover. Some people ne- fall apart and never recover. And then there are those who, if you address your pain and trauma – it actually catapults them to new heights. And if you talk to anybody about their hardest moments uh, or when they've grown the most, just they always say it's it's been in the hardest things that I've been through in my life. I'm talking to Benjamin Sledge, the uh, author of Where Cowards Go to Die, a new book about his experience and his tours of duty in Iraq, Afghanistan, and then his process uh, for healing and trauma here at home. He's a recipient of a Bronze Star and Purple Heart. Um, you sort of alluded to it Sledge, and I wonder, um, you know, if there's any positive answer to this, but how is this country doing when it comes to caring for its veterans? Uh, good, bad, and ugly. <laughs> what do you uh, think I'm going to say? <laughs> Setting you up there, my friend. Well, I, I know what you're going to say. You want to look at the cost of your freedom? Just go down to the local VA. How are we doing there? They, they couldn't even admit that they exposed us to, you know, toxic burn pits. It's, it's a disaster. We have guys dying from cancer now that can't even get like disability and are permanently disabled, but it's a fight with like the VA system. Um, and then we go, Oh, we got to do better care. And, and we're just, it's not good. And in times past, and I read about this in the book, there was kind of more of this communal responsibility. And, and the problem is, is, since, yeah, and, and and by the way, you go far back. You're talking about the the Navajo. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the Crusades. Yeah, um, and and how um, various societies over the last hundreds of years have cared for their uh, returning soldiers. Correct, and they they would typically perform purification rites because either way, most of us believe that the taking of another life is not good in these times past, they would purify their soldiers and the community would rally around them and take on that collective responsibility of the trauma and war that they faced. Uh, And it ranged from even the medieval knights, because though the Catholic church sanctioned the crusades, um, they, they believed that it was still wrong, which is kind of weird to, to think about, but 
Uh, and then in World War II, you had the entire community populace just focused on the war effort. You know, we were working in factories. Uh, you would go to the movies and you would see about it. But, you know, Vietnam, it, it was also in your face. But, he, you know, 20 years of war, we were largely checked out. So out of that, you know, we've got to do a better job of like kind of that collective responsibility. And we're trying to help, but we're not we're not doing the best job. We've we've created, I think it's like 50,000 veteran nonprofits now. And 90 billion um, has been spent on helping veterans, but what we don't need is more. We need just better help. We need, we need better help in the, in the long run. And that's, that's going to take the community and collective responsibility. How, how can civilians support you? How can civilians support veterans, especially as you literally laughed when I asked how the uh, VA is doing, and I've heard these stories and we've seen these stories and we've seen the corruption and we've mm-hmm. seen the mismanagement there. Uh, but as Americans who want to support um, those who have uh, put on the uniform for this country, what what can we do? My biggest thing is I, I just want to bridge the civilian soldier gap. That's why I wrote the book the way that I did, um, because I wanted civilians to understand like what happened the last 20 years and also like what they can do. And, and the biggest thing is, is nobody has veteran friends like it's just you might know of somebody, but you don't really know a Vietnam veteran. You aren't really friends with them. It's, it, you know, it's kind of like the same people who are like, Oh, I have black friends and they're And it's just like by association, but they don't know their story. They don't know what they've been exposed to as far as systems uh, of injustice or uh, you know, that what they've dealt with growing up in the South or, or what, whatever have you. When you really begin to get to know somebody and you befriend them, you'll understand their story. And the more that you understand their story, you'll know how to empathize and sympathize. And that begins just by, you know, opening up yourself. It takes time to build friendships. And in society anymore, we want things microwaved. I, I mean, I get mad when my phone doesn't go to space real quick and retrieve data for me, you know? I'm <laughs> like, oh, this phone is stupid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we treat our relationships that way. We treat, especially our romantic ones, we want those microwaved too. And the reality of the situation is, is we've got to take time and it's going to take some investment. But my, my whole thing is, is like become friends with the veteran um, and really begin to open up to you. And then as you become friends, you're, you're going to get to hear more and their stories and their ask questions. Like don't ask the dumb questions where it's like, did you kill anybody? Like, again, you're going straight to the point of trauma. Um, instead, ask them like, hey, I, I've seen the medals on your wall. How did how'd you earn one of those, you know, or, uh, Hey, I, I saw that, you know, you're in the military. What'd you do? You know, just simple qu- and then begin to know them and they begin to open up. And really, as you t- take on that collective responsibility and hear their story and understand them, I think you're really just going to start helping and, and healing them. At the same time, you've talked about not coddling veterans no. um, challenge. So h- how do we ride this line? Cause you're like, well, we don't want to be coddled and like, you know, how are you doing? But at the same time, you want us to challenge you, but you don't want us to kind of bring out the trauma. Ex- explain that that conundrum, um, the the coddling versus challenge. Yeah, so we we treat everything with kid gloves these days, and and even a lot of times when we're dealing with people that haven't served in the military and are dealing with mental health stuff, and and there's this uh, aspect that they use in the mental health world called motivational interviewing, where you kind of it's almost like a judo move where you show somebody that they're the, their answer is kind of ridiculous, you know, when you repeat it back to them and it makes them see it just like, and kind of challenges them instead. 
Uh, it's like that, you know, if all your friends were jumping off a bridge kind of moment thing and they realize, no, I wouldn't have some, unless you're a veteran. Um, but out of that, you know, in the military, we're used to being yelled at, screamed at, told to suck it up and drive on. And yet when we come home, the message that's being portrayed at the VA is that you are too weak to handle your past pain and trauma. So therefore we need to put you in an alternate reality because you're so weak. And yet in the military, the message is, is you, you better take some bullets and carry your wounded buddy and we don't care how hard it gets. And so out of that, like you have to begin with sympathy and empathy, but also at the same time, you know, if they're out there hurting people, you'd be like, Hey, do you really believe this is the best choice for your life? Like the way that you you're acting there, whether you're drinking, you know, the entire, and it, it begins with those, you know, those questions, like, do you believe, like get them to think critically about their actions and like, do you actually want to grow or do you just want to stay stuck? Because staying, there's nothing brave about staying stuck. And so out of that, like if, if you're able to do both where you empathize and sympathize with their experience, but also at the same time, challenge them to grow and get better out of that growth, then I think that that's really where you're going to see uh, a difference. I know you've been working with an organization uh, that helps veterans. Um, talk to me about the best resources, especially if you're concerned or you want to be able to get a veteran help or you have somebody coming home. Um, what, what are the best resources available right now? um, to our, uh, men and women. Um, I'm, I'm always going to say this. You're their first line of defense. If they came to you, it's because they trust you. Um, and it's the same thing. Like when people are struggling with suicide, they, they typically reach out and tell somebody, but then we freak out and we go, Oh no, we need to send them to the professionals. They don't want to talk to the professional. They want to talk to you. That's why they reached out. And the best thing that you can do is be uh, an ear for them. So I always say the first line of defense is you. Uh, but if you're looking at specifically organizations and entities that are, are doing some really cool stuff, um, the the one that I love and I, I personally donate to and, and there, there are others um, is if you're looking for something specifically that's like a rehabilitative program, uh, Heroes and Horses up in uh, Bozeman, Montana is fantastic. They have a 41 day in, intensive rehabilitation program where they specifically exec uh, deal with the past pain, trauma, don't coddle them, uh, you know, have them go through like clean eating and prayer and meditation, like in the morning, um, they're, they're confronting the demons of their past and they walk out there different people. And then obviously there's the equine therapy, uh, in addition to it, um, you know, heart support I used to work with, they're fantastic. They're building up their, uh, veteran stuff that's headed up by a dear friend of mine, uh, command Sergeant major Donald McAllister, uh, who was with the 82nd airborne fought all overseas. So they're, they're doing cool stuff kind of on the brink. Um, there, there are just, ton- I, I love the, the streaming network, um, veteran TV. I'm working on a partnership with them. Uh, just because they, they get the dark humor and the crazy stuff, but they're also doing really important documentaries. Like, uh, we need to talk about war, uh, where you, you're hearing these stories of these guys that are going through this stuff. And there, there are other ones that are just doing, uh, amazing work, stop soldier suicide. And, and you just have, you have to do your research a little bit more to kind of figure out who, who's doing what, and what are they doing and how are they helping? Um, and what's their success rate and what are they doing? And then there are service, you know, volunteer organizations like the mission continues and team Rubicon, which takes veterans and gets them to serve so that they feel that sense of, uh, belonging and camaraderie while, uh, heading to disaster zones. Some great organizations there. Um, sledge, uh, having now, uh, 
been a, a veteran, experienced the uh, the uh, complete incompetence at times of the government, etc. Do you have uh, a couple ideas on what uh, the VA and the U.S. government should and could be doing for its veterans? Oh yeah, I mean it's not that hard. Here's the funny thing: my mom retired from uh, she retired from the public school system, and it's it's funny. So I, she goes, "Have you ever? You know who has the best medical care?" And I go, "No." And she was like, "Any government employee." She's like, "You look at the politicians; they just man, it's easy for them to just." go see a physician or whatever, or this other thing. And then it's paid for and whatnot. And she was like, it, you know, my benefits are phenomenal, but you look at your politicians, they have great ones and we should be on those same plans. That's what they should be giving to us and taking care of us. But instead, and they don't pay their VA employees. Well, um, the benefits are good as far as, as government stuff. Uh, but you know, they're, they're not attracting the the talent that they need. And obviously the, if you look at the budget, most of it is spent on defense and, and veterans too, but it's just, uh, there's so much fraud, waste and abuse and mismanagement of funds that they need an out, a third party non-governmental agency to kind of come in and go, these are the problem issues and, and then actually deal with it as opposed to being like, you know, letting scapegoats go loose because ultimately it's it, it, we're just going to continue in that cycle and that's what they do they're, they're like they're like oh there's an inquiry and an investigation into this and, and i mean that's what they're doing with the january 6th insurrection and, and w- do we really think anything important is going to come out of this except a dog and pony show when they did the it, the inquiry into the va and all the problems that they saw there what changes have there really been there hasn't been any um so there has to be that that responsibility yeah, I've, I've been struck recently by the headlines in the past couple of months about the recruitment challenges the U.S. Mm-hmm. military is currently facing. I imagine you've seen some of those. Yeah, um, and it's because we've kind of coddled a generation too. That's me being a salty like Gen Xer <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> oh, well, I, I didn't know if part of it was also that people are seeing you know the the lackluster care we give our veterans also when they come home. Well, that's true too, and and. Yeah. Uh, I think the unfortunate part is, is they're trying to do recruiting efforts the wrong way where, you know, they're like, we're a kinder, gentler army. And, you know, we, we allow difference of opinions that that's not the point of the military. Even Jim Mattis was like, Hey, we're focused on fighting a war. And it's like, do you want to grow? Do you want a house? Do you want to go to college? Do you want, you know, an experience and camaraderie and brotherhood that the rest of the world is not going to give you? And, and they're going about it all the wrong way. And then on top of that, you know, I, I think they should challenge them. Like the, the, the reports are saying that most people trying to get in have too many mental health issues and they're, um, and they're dealing, they're overweight and obese. Well, of course, you know, America's overweight and obese. So challenge them. Like, Hey, do you want to lose some weight? Like the, uh, we had these guys that they, they were super overweight and then you put up they you put them in boot camp. And I remember my Samoan battle buddy. That poor dude lost so much. He was totally overweight when he got there. Uh, dude named Smith and <laughs> the, uh, the steady riot of rice and chicken and just torture got him awesome, man. And the people who graduate and the camaraderie and we we had gangbangers from like L.A. and like everybody, you know, it's this hodgepodge and then you become 
friends, you become brothers and you would do anything for one another and you put aside those differences. And it's like, hey, instead of living in a divided world, how about you come to the military where we actually care about people of color, where we care about your differences and your ideologies. Just go to the barracks on any base and you'll see that there because there you'll be listening. You'll have cowboys in there listening to gangster rap while somebody's cooking Indian food. So that's that's a, a just different recruiting efforts for me because I'm like, what you're doing now is obviously not working and yeah. you, you know, stop coddling them. You know, you're like, oh, we're so kind and cuddly in the military. I'm like, you go to war. That's all out the window and you will have trained these people for the wrong for the wrong thing. So you've begun uh, to promote your book. You're talking about your new book, Where Cowards Go to Die. Um, what do you hope uh, someone takes away from it? The extreme and profound challenges that the, sol- the last 20 years have presented to our soldiers and a populace that was largely checked out the entire time and didn't care because they were able to enjoy those freedoms. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I, I hear it often. People are like, okay, well, I didn't vote for this person or, you know, I, I didn't support the war. And I go, yeah, that's fine, but you still live in this country. And if you go to any country on earth, you have to submit to their governing rules and authority and you elect people, whether you vote or don't vote, to govern those affairs and they will send people justly or unjustly overseas. And since you live in this country, you still have a collective responsibility to that, unfortunately. And and instead, we're, we're really trying to play this blame game where we pit each other against one another and... And what I want people to see is that because of that, we have alienated an, an entire generation of veterans who allowed them their lives to be completely unaffected for 20 years. No terrorist attacks on soils. Right. No, no draft. You didn't get draft. You could be <laughs> – you could hate the war. Hate it just like in Vietnam and protest it and all of that. But had we enacted a draft, your number could have got punched. You better be enjoying your freedom, buddy. So that's the thing. We, we gave people that kind of collective checkout for 20 years. And I go, do you want to know what the cost was? It was astronomical. We got institutionalized. And we just we sent 0.86% of the population on repeated back-to-back tours and then left them to hang out and dry. And so, And then the other part of that is I want veterans to feel like their story is finally told. Well, you certainly do tell it in in the new book, Where Cars Go to Die. Uh, Benjamin Sledge, Sledge, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you uh, for your service. Thank you for helping your fellow veterans uh, and, and wishing you luck with the new book. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on here. It's always a blast to get to talk with you. Our thanks to Benjamin Sledge for his incredible perspective and incredible candor. Check out his book, Where Cowards Go to Die, wherever you get your books. You can also read more from our conversation in the Mo News newsletter. That's available over at monews.bulletin.com. And of course, follow us for the latest and greatest over at, at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H over on Instagram. A reminder to follow and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. It helps us keep this show growing. See you back here tomorrow for another Mo News podcast.